this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Bernice Halbern, your host, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jeremy Dauber about his new book, The Worlds of Shalom Aleichem, The Remarkable Life and Afterlife of the Man Who Created Tevye. Just published by Next Book, Shock and Press, this book represents what I think is a breakthrough in the literature about this great writer. Reading this book, a great pleasure, so beautifully written, the words flow perfectly, delightfully, as if Sholem Aleichem is personally telling you the story of his life, sharing his tales with you. You won't want the book to end. Like a good story, and also like good theater, this book is constructed and reads. Professor Dauber fashions the book with an overture. Sholem Aleichem's life unrolls before us, as in fact it was, a life filled with drama. So from riches to rags and back again, from Russia to America, Sholem Aleichem's life always bore the possibility of another turn, its author ever optimistic. The book ends with an epilogue in 10 scenes that take you through the worldwide reinvention of Sholem Aleichem, in part a product of his most famous creation, Tevye. But more about that later. For our listeners in Houston... Let me point out to you that Jeremy Dauber will be speaking about the worlds of Shalom Aleichem at the Evelyn Rubenstein Jewish Community Center in Houston on Sunday afternoon, November 17th at 4 p.m. I encourage you to attend. Now let me welcome Professor Jeremy Dauber to New Books in Jewish Studies. Welcome. Thank you. It's a real, a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. So if you could please share with our listeners, Jeremy, your background and how you came to write The Worlds of Shalom Aleichem. Uh, I'd be delighted. My, uh, my background, uh, you know, is as professionally as a Yiddish uh, studies professor, a professor of Jewish literature uh, and Yiddish literature at Columbia. Uh, and I had grown up in a traditional Jewish background in, in New Jersey, but uh, I did not know that much about Yiddish literature uh, until I took a, uh, an opportunity to be a summer intern at the National Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. And that was really the first place uh, that I got to read uh, modern Yiddish literature in any real way, uh, in translation at that point, obviously. Uh, and then I was very lucky because the year after that, my uh, my teacher, Ruth Weiss, came to Harvard where I was in college, and uh, I was able to take a whole bunch of classes with her and really see some of the contours of this magnificent literature. Uh, and that was uh, the first time that in any real way I had come into grips, I had come into contact, excuse me, with Shalom Aleichem, with this magnificent storyteller and writer. Uh, and, you know, I, I was surprised to find um, that because of where Yiddish studies had been in the academy and for other reasons, you know, there really had not been a biography uh, of this major writer. And I just sort of filed that away, you know, for years to come. And then, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to get a job and have a career in, in this field. And, uh, you know, when this opportunity came along, it was just a, you know, it was, it was a, a real wonderful chance to do it. 
interesting. That is, that is really amazing that nobody has written, um, or not recently in any event, a biography of this great figure. So l- let me uh, turn to Shalom Aleichem then. You describe him as the creator of Tevye, Star of Fiddler on the Roof, a hit musical theater from Japan to India to America and everywhere in between, a recorder of our great-grandfather's lives. But the author of Tevye was no Tevye, but Shalom Rabinovich, who you call a first-class intellect and brilliant writer who translated the momentous events of his day for an audience looking for nuance wrapped in simplicity. That, that's quite a description. Could you explain that, please? Sure. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that, uh, to the extent that people think about Shalom Aleichem, when you say, you know, oh, he's the writer of the Chevy story that became Fiddler on the Roof, you know, I think that there has been um, a, a propensity to confuse him with kind of his creation and to say, oh, well, he must have been a kind of simple folk Jew and, you know, he, you know, he loved these people he wrote about them. He was probably a lot like them, you know, from a very traditional, simple background. Well, he did come from a traditional background, but he really was not a, a you know, a simple sort of, uh, you know, unsophisticated as some of even his earliest critics sometimes might have thought that he was a little bit. Um, he really was a sophisticated literary artist uh, who at the same time was able to appeal to this wide, wide range uh, of, of Jews uh, from all different walks of life, in part because he spoke to so many different concerns and so many different sub-communities. Uh, and I was really interested in trying to both unpack that myth and, and, and get through, uh, you know, examination of the stories and of his life, get to exactly how he might have been able to do that, uh, how he was able to be one of these figures who united uh, a Jewish community that was um, extremely uh, compartmentalized and factionalized and fractious, particularly at this momentous transitional period in Jewish modern history. Very interesting. Uh, your, your book is written in the rhythm of the language of Shalom Aleichem, it seemed to me. Perhaps playfully assuming the structure of a drama with an overture, five acts, and an epilogue in ten scenes. You take on the voice of the theater impresario, talking to your audience, but at the same time, it's Shalom Aleichem's voice as narrator in his stories. How did you resolve on this delightful structure? Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I, I this really was um, part of a series, and I'm really grateful to the next book and the Jewish Encounters series, for taking a, you know a, a chance on on me, um, and you know these these books originally through this next book and shock in partnership were designed as kind of encounters with an author with an with an idea. So there was this kind of uh, already opportunity to be a little bit more uh, untraditional, let's say, in the particular kind of format. Um, and then you know I I started thinking about this person whose life really was a performance in certain kinds of ways. I mean, he became known by a pseudonym that became so, uh, you know, omnipresent that in some sense it even took over his own personal life. I said, maybe it was right to use the structure of performance to start talking about it. And that, that seemed to be a nice way of, uh, how would I put it, uh, framing the book in a certain way when the introduction became kind of an overture and then there were these scenic afterlives and things like that. And and it, it really, you know, began to, as time went on, fortuitously fall into place that, you know, his life really could be divided into these five kind of act structures. And uh, this was a kind of theatrical move that I think uh, the author himself would have enjoyed as well. Well, I, I found it brilliant. And I think it 
and encloses your reader um, even more in his life. It just um, wraps us up in, in what we're reading about. Let, let's talk for a moment about the process of writing this biography. Um, you indicate in the book that Sholem Aleichem left 28 volumes of his writings. How did you handle the preparation of a biography with so much material? You know, and I, I will say that uh, first, you know, it, it, it's even in that sense sort of a more voluminous challenge because not all of his material, you know, was published in those volumes. And that doesn't count, you know, his letters, um, which became a major source for me of sort of trying to get behind the scenes, so to speak, of the work. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a tremendous, although there hadn't been this kind of in, you know, literary biography in this way. There certainly was a tremendous amount of critical material as well. Uh, and so it was a lot of material to kind of go through. Uh, I think, you know, there were all sorts of different strategies I used, but one of them that I thought was very uh, helpful to me was to try and simply live his life forward. Uh, you know, was to read sort of the works, uh, even the works that had been, uh, that, that are best known as a series, what the Tevye series is written between 1894 and 1914 uh, or so. And, and essentially to say, you know, I'm not going to prejudge where this is going to go uh, in 1894. I'm going to treat it as, you know, as of a piece with a lot of the other stuff that he's written in that period. He knows all of the things that he's written before, but he doesn't know what he's going to write afterwards unless, you know, we know that he has plans and he's plotting it or something like that. And it was surprising to me uh, how much was revealed by, I guess, that particular, that, that, I don't know whether it's simple or not, but that particular simple trick uh, of saying, okay, well, here is what he's thinking about, here's where he's living now, here's what his letters seem to suggest, here's what, uh, you know, the literature that he's thinking about uh, is doing. Uh, here's what the outside events of the world are happening at that particular time. And, you know, when you sort of separate out as a result of that, uh, you get to find some interesting conclusions. So it really was just trying to keep a very rigorous uh, order of what he would have been thinking about, what he would have known, what he wouldn't have known in terms of even his own life and work. Thank you. Thank you. Let, let's turn to his pen name, which... Uh, you indicate in the book, translates as Mr. How Do You Do. How did he come to adopt this name? And what do you think? Of, I'm sorry. What do you oh, think I'm sorry. Of, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, so. yeah, I'm uh, sorry. Well, I was wondering, too, um, how you, what you thought about his choice. Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because it was uh, a choice, and I, you know, as I say in the book, it was a choice that kind of evolved, that uh, he used at the beginning of his career a bunch of different pseudonyms. Um, that, uh, you know, to, to, uh, disguise his identity, sometimes, uh, maybe out of really actually wanting that people not to know who he was, and sometimes I think just out of a sense of fun. He's a very playful guy. Uh, and Shalom Aleichem was one of them, you know, it took off from his first name, Shalom, and as, as you say, it translates into a kind of fun, how do you do, and a very common phrase in Hebrew and Yiddish, what have you. So, uh, I don't think, you know, he didn't think at the time, this is going to be the one that's, uh, that, that's going to be sort of my legacy. Um, but as time went on, it, you know, the, the personality and the persona that was uh, associated with this pseudonym became one that really I think he liked, which was uh, a kind of somewhat playful, mischievous, uh, you know, character. Uh, and that evolved with him as he became sort of a, a, a more senior figure as well. Uh, I think it actually ends up working very well for him because 
you know, he was as a personality always open to all sorts of new things. He was a kind of welcome guy uh, in many ways. And at the same time, he also was very interested in encountering people. You know, he was always someone, and I, I think we'll get to this when we talk about Tavia, uh, he was always someone who was interested in listening to other voices, hearing them, uh, learning from them, and using their material, if you liked it, as as the basis for his narratives and for his stories. And so that kind of open enthusiasm was something I think that uh, the name suggested was very resonant. Interesting. It really makes him come alive. Um, yeah. It could- could you talk about, if you would, what makes him a Jewish writer? It's a great question. It's a great question because he is, I mean, he is a, a, a great universal writer. And, you know, all universal and, and, and great talent is located in the particular. And that's true of Shalom Aleichem as well. Um, so he's a great, you know, writer, full stop. But he's also a great Jewish writer. And I think that, that comes from two particular kinds of ways. I mean, maybe more, but the two that I'll focus on. The first is that he's writing very much about a particular set of Jewish uh, historical uh, questions and historical contingencies. In other words, these are stories that really grapple with the kind of life and fate of at least the Eastern European Jewish people, the Ashkenazic Jews, uh, as they as they deal with modernity, and particularly Russian Jewry, as it becomes uh, increasingly clear to him, at least, that there's not a kind of modus vivendi that's able to take place between Russia and, and its Jews. Um, so in that case, he's really grounded in a particular set of Jewish questions uh, in ways that, you know, maybe some writers might be of a particular time and place, but, uh, you know, they're not necessarily uh, as grounded in that way. Um, that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is, of course, that he writes in a Jewish language, which is to say Yiddish. He also wrote in Hebrew and in Russian, but, but really he wrote in Yiddish. Uh, and he was able to use all of the various registers of that language to draw on uh, vast repositories of Jewish cultural knowledge and history and, and, and text uh, in ways that, that, that I think are very deeply uh, embedded in Jewish uh, literature and culture and history. Very interesting. Let's talk about language for a minute. Um, during the Haskalah, or Jewish Enlightenment, um, authors were called upon to write um, in Hebrew or Russian. Um, how did Shalom Aleichem respond to this influence? Well, yes, I, I mean, I think that... Uh, when you were a modernizing Enlightenment uh, intellectual, Jewish intellectual, uh, a member of the Haskalah, you know, your choices really were, generally speaking, twofold in order to show off your credibility in that respect. You would either write in the classical Jewish language Hebrew, which was something that was, uh, you know, had such great reputation, even among non-Jews, that there was no question that, uh, you know, you were being high culture. On the other hand, not a lot of people would necessarily read you. Um, or you would write in Russian, or the co-territorial language, whatever whatever country you happen to be in. Um, and there you had the advantage of some group of people reading you, and of course non-Jews were able to read you much better, but the, the vast traditional Jewish constituency that you might want to be addressing polemically to reform, uh, you know, you, there, there are ways from your perspective, you wouldn't necessarily be able to read your language. So 
that was why uh, a lot of sort of how or why and how a lot of modern Yiddish writers of this period decided to write in Yiddish, kind of grudgingly, uh, and saying, "Well, you know, I really would rather be writing in Hebrew, but I, I want to teach." these communities, uh, how to behave like a modern Jew, and so I have to, like, stoop down to them to write, in, you know, in the language uh, that they uh, they can understand. Shalom Aleichem's perspective uh, was a little bit different. He had a deep, deep love of Hebrew uh, and of Russian for that. He was really enthusiastic. He was very open about this. He had learned Russian very well from a fairly, from a very early age, uh, and was in love with its culture and its literature, um, in, in, you know, in many deep ways, he loved Hebrew. Uh, he he loved sort of the the Zion-oriented writings of Hebrew writers like Avraham Mapu, uh, and continued to love the Bible, that that great greatest perhaps work of Hebrew literature. Uh, and uh, you know, so he had his books, books, but he also loved Yiddish very deeply. And he did for two particular reasons, I would say. The first is that. It was the language that he was most naturally a part of, and and he, he was someone who did love to write sort of honestly and clearly and flexibly in a language that he, he felt comfortable with. Uh, and the second was that he loved also making a connection with an audience. He loved he was a, a, a kind of performer, as we said, in that way, and he loved getting the feedback of an audience laughing and, and enjoying. And he knew that both for the for his time and place, uh, both Hebrew and Russian. Even for his audience, would be almost very frequently sort of one step distance from where they actually were, as opposed to Yiddish, which was sort of more organic uh, in that way. So he really he loved both those aspects of it. That said, he was very comfortable with his work being adapted and translated and sort of uh, you know read in other languages if those were the languages that people sort of were comfortable in. Um, so he wasn't precious uh, in that way, although he did deeply love these languages each in their own way. Your, your comments bring back uh, to mind uh, aspects of the book. So um, I'm just uh, sort of thinking about them. Uh, l- let me ask you about his um, the, fl- the flowering of Russian literature that he was very much aware of. Um, you've, you've already shared with us that he did write in Russian. and um, But um, specifically, I understand from your book, he corresponded with Gogol, who was a with, fellow. With, Cor- with Corky. With Corky. Oh, corresponded with, yeah. Corky. And, uh, and he was very influenced by Gogol. Uh, that was, that's absolutely, uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, he was someone who from a very early age knew Russian Ukrainian literature, as you say, Gogol's fellow Ukrainian. Um, he really, um, how would I put this? He was very, very interested in trying to show some of the writers who he did correspond with that there was this great sort of Jewish literature, uh, here that it was just as good. Uh, as other literatures and therefore, you know, should be respected and its, its writers and its people should be respected in the same kind of way. Um, but ultimately, I think he loved a lot of this literature because it was great literature and it offered sort of the understanding and the capacity for human expression that he sought in his own writing. Uh, and that, that really was what he loved about it. It was his literature in, in, in that way. But, but uh, in, in certain ways, so was Dickens, and so was Cervantes, and so were some of the other people who he name checks uh, as well. Uh, you know, he really was a lover of great writing and great literature, and 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 he took it wherever he could find it. So interesting. Um, and when he chose to write in Yiddish, was he a pioneer in that respect, or 
how did that come about? You, you've you've um, you've already laid the groundwork for us to understand how he had an audience that he performed for, in a sense, when he wrote yeah. in Yiddish. So, you know, I'm sorry, go on. No, no, it's you. your turn. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you know, in, in, in some sense, it, you know, it's very difficult to claim that he was the first to do anything, right? In, in, you know, in, in, in many ways, certainly in terms of when it comes to the writing. There were already individuals who were beginning to put together uh, work that had literary ambitions and was expressing uh, enlightenment ideas in Yiddish already, for example. There were people he created himself, a kind of literary genealogy of kind of modern Yiddish literature, where he put uh, this other writer who was known as Mendel the Book Peddler as his grandfather, and he was just a grandson. But he was uh, someone who really um, both was a trailblazer in terms of creating uh, a, a new forum for Yiddish as sort of a, a place to have literary ambitions expressed. He did that sort of early in his career, sort of publishing this very uh, influential literary anthology, the Jewish uh, People's Library. Uh, and he um, also, I think, was very uh, influential in writing uh, a certain kind of modern Yiddish story that was both uh, folk-like and simple, but also sort of very complicated, sometimes so complicated that critics didn't quite understand that it was complicated at all. So whether he was the first to do that, no, you know, not necessarily, but he really put it on the map in many different kinds of ways. You write that he did it all. He was a family man, a fantastically wealthy stockbroker, a left-wing agitator, a Zionist. He suffered through war, revolution, and pogroms at, were at his doorstep. He faced commercial disaster. He dealt with family deaths and personal illness. And yet, and yet he wrote with humor. Could, could you talk to us about his dealing with personal tragedies and the form that that takes in his writings? Uh, I'd be happy to. And I think in certain ways, you know, that, that also gets us to this very vexed and difficult question of Jewish humor, um, which is John Levin was one of these great Jewish, one of the great Jewish humorists. Uh, and one of the ways in which he did this, not the only way, one of the, one of the ways in which he expressed Jewish comedy was by taking uh, trauma uh, and turning it into comedy. Uh, and, you know, that if you somehow are able to take these personal issues and you're able to put them into literature, well, then you have a certain kind of control over it. And if it's literature that you can laugh at, even in a kind of black humor, black comedy sort of way, uh, well, that, that even is able to uh, uh, help you get deal with it uh, even more. So I think that uh, that is one of the ways that he does this with his own personal demons, his own personal tragedies, whether it's sort of economic misfortunes uh, or uh, bio, you know, or, or familial issues or things like that. Um, he writes these stories uh, about failed businessmen, for example, about Menachem Mendel or even Tevye, at the beginning of his career starts out as a failed businessman in a certain kind of way, uh, and says, you know, look, See, uh, I'm laughing at myself, and I'm, I'm, you know, and other people can laugh at me too, and I can, I can move on. 
um, because the people in the stories move on, they provide a certain kind of hope. Uh, this is also true for Sean Leffel, and this is, again, part of his genius, and he does this on a national level as well. These stories, certainly as his career goes on, begin to express um, the setbacks or the tragedies or the traumas that Jews have historically, in, particularly in the Russian Empire. Uh, although not only, he writes some stories about America as well. Uh, and then he's able to say, well, you know, we can look at this and we can laugh, and that means that we can sort of move on past it and we can sort of survive the resilience. And that was a huge lesson for uh, for Shalom uh, Lechem's audience, I should say, uh, and something that, that really led to his enormous popularity. Thank you. You write that though he didn't follow ritual practice, he was a man of tradition. I wonder if you might talk about his view of tradition and how he differed from others in his treatment of change. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. You know, Shalom grew up, I mean, when he was a boy, in other words, he did have, a, he was born into a traditional environment. Uh, and as he got older, he moved away from that. He was not uh, uh, observant of the Sabbath. He did not keep kosher. Um, but at the same time, he really had an extremely uh, fond sense of what the traditional proprieties should be. He loved observing the holidays and gathering family together for the holidays. Uh, he was he felt that life cycle events were very important for mitzvahs for his kids, for his sons, um, you know, and, and things like that. Uh, and most importantly, I think for for us in certain ways, he felt that. Everyone should understand and should know the ebbs and flows of traditional culture through knowing history, text, literature, and what have you. So it was one thing, there's an old joke in Jewish life that says, you know, you're not a, I'm, I'm going to translate it right, but the punchline is, that person's not a heretic, he's just an ignoramus. <laughs> um, and... You know, it was okay for Shalom Aleichem to feel that you could be uh, a heretic. You could still be a traditional heretic. Because then you, to be a heretic, you really have to know. Mm -hmm. And you, you're, you're in broader tradition in that way. To be an ignoramus, though, was beyond the pale for him. And he was not happy about it at all. I'll say, in addition, that he ended up also trying to write in his stories, and particularly in the Tevye stories, about characters um, who can make a kind of compromise. Can they, they can see between sort of the way in which the world is changing on them and their efforts to keep their kind of lives, uh, not just in terms of traditional observance, but just in terms of traditional culture and traditional modes of thought uh, as the world is transforming all around them. The real question that Tevye has is how, not whether or not he will change or not. He, he will because his family changes around him and his world changes around him, but how far he's willing to change. Uh, and that, that is a question that Shalom Lechem plays out over the course of decades uh, in writing about Tevyet and writing in these stories, uh, all these other stories as well. And his positions change as he gets older, as life changes, as history changes uh, as well. There's no particular, I, I should say, there's no set uh, formula that he establishes at the beginning of his career that he holds through his life that, that would be holding him to a, an inhuman standard. Um, he, he changes, as we all do. Well, that's a sign of his growth and um, learning, I yeah, guess, exactly. too. Right. So in, in the context then of talking about tradition and response to modernity, let's talk about Tevye, with whom Shalom Aleichem is most famously identified. Could you tell us a bit about the real Tevye and how Shalom Aleichem came to write about him? Uh, sure. So Tevye, uh, excuse me, Shalom Aleichem used to summer with his family in the small 
uh, town outside of Kiev. Um, and there was this guy there named Tevye, apparently, who delivered dairy products to, uh, to, to, to people in the, in, you know, in the neighborhood. And as I said before, when we were talking about his name, you know, Shalom Levin really loved to go out and talk to all sorts of people, hear particular kinds of ways of speaking and ideas that he would then sort of transform into, in his own work. But, you know, he, he would be able to get sort of a sense of the voices of the, of the, uh, of the community, of the crowd, and what have you. And apparently, at least according to his daughter, we, he really, he loved this guy, this dairy man guy. And he, you know, Shalom Aleichem always had a little notebook and he would write things down. And they saw him talking to this dairy man and writing down furiously, you know, whatever uh, they were saying. Now, it's, it's certain, I think we can say for definitive fact, that, you know, this story that Shalom Aleichem first wrote about Debbie and certainly all the subsequent stories was not whatever this dairy man told him, you know. But, but whatever it was, it was certainly inspirational. And it got so much that, you know, Sherlock was able to write in letters to people, you should come to visit me and you'll get a chance to see, you know, Tevya uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So you, I think you say at one point in your book that Tevya stood for hope. Can, can you explain this? Yeah, I, you know, I think that, uh, how would I put this? At different, at different stages of Tevye's composition, he stands for different kinds of hope. You know, at the beginning, uh, when he's, when the Tevye's first appearance takes place, uh, Shalom has written these stories about people who have failed. And Tevye, in this first story, uh, ends up actually succeeding. He has a jackpot. He, he does, he ends up being better off than he was before. Um, in subsequent stories, as, as Shalom Aleichem decides to tell more and more stories about Tevye, the, the hope becomes of a kind of different and more nuanced and complicated way, uh, and that is that uh, many of Tevye's stories end up, as they talk about his daughters, with these uh, terrible fates that, are, that, that befall these various daughters. But Tevye, of course, is still there to tell the stories of what happened, which shows that while he may have been bloodied, he's unbound. And we get this sense that Tevye is going to continue uh, being there, telling these stories, moving on, and that no matter what happens, you know, he has this kind of resilience. And that's a certain kind of hope as well. Interesting. Let, let me ask you, with Herzl and the First Zionist Congress, Shalom Lachem turns to Zionism in the 1890s. How did the Tevye stories and characters evolve at this time? Well, I, you know, it's a great question. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that Shalom Lachem was always, as I said, from a very early age, he loved these stories, these Hebrew stories that were set in Zion. Um, they were uh, the love of Zion by Aramapu, other kinds of stories. And so when the Zionist movement really begins to take off, um, he, he is incredibly interested and excited uh, in this movement. I'm not sure that he thought that it was necessarily come to, going to come to fruition. Of course, he died decades before the Jewish state was established. But he, he certainly loved this dream. Um, and, and as a result, you know, it befit uh, some of his stories, which were in many ways about dreamers. Uh, Shalom Aleichem, you know, wrote a, a story in 1890, I think, called Zealot Mechanic, uh, about uh, sort of a, a young, uh, or a little man, let's call him, sort of a, you know, not a, ma- not a major guy, but sort of a regular guy who becomes sort of interested in the Zionist movement. And that, in some ways, becomes a paradigm for, for the Tevye stories as well, which is, 
you talk about these big issues like Zionism, like socialism, like uh, intermarriage through the lens of a regular person as opposed to sort of a, an extraordinary individual. Uh, and, and, and that was, I think, again, one of the ways in which so many people read these stories and, and they, they appealed to them because they said this is someone who we can see who's like us, who's not a big, you know, fancy uh, intellectual or, uh, or a remarkable artist hero or something like that. This is just a regular guy. Interesting. So you, you note that Harvard historian Ruth Weiss observes that Tevi is unique in that Sholem Aleichem focuses on daughters, not sons, and the story is told from the father's perspective, perhaps unlike Turgenev in Fathers and Sons, um, and the father, in fact, Tevia changes. Can you um, say a few words about that? Yeah, you know, for, first I'll just say, you know, Ruth is my teacher, uh, and, and I've learned so much from her, but this is one of those kind of things that you, that you just say, it's, it's the sign of a, of a wonderful critic, because it's something that on some level is so obvious, right, but, but nobody sees it, nobody's seen it before, and then when, when they say it, it just sort of turns the whole thing around. Say, of course, right, that, that's huge. Uh, and that I think is the case here, right, is to say, really, it's almost not as interesting to talk about some of the younger generations because in, in some sense they're unformed, right? They, they're, they're plastic, they, they're, they're, they're ductile. Um, but the older generation, they already have whatever conventional wisdom it is. It doesn't have to be traditional observance. It could be whatever habits of mind have been shaped over a lifetime. And how is it that you're going to be able to change those habits? Do you bend? Do you break? What do you do? Uh, and, and that becomes really the challenge that Tevye, and indeed the Shalom Aleichem, of course, later in life has to face. One of the things the Shalom Aleichem could not really do, for example, Shalom Aleichem here, not Tevye, is adapt to America. It never really worked for him. Um, you know, he understood that a younger generation, this is why he created this character, this, this childlike character, uh, uh, to, to, to talk about the immigration to America, that he understood that generation of children, America would be a new world for them. But uh, to be an immigrant in his 50s, it, it, just, it just was too late in some ways. Um, he, you know, I mean, there was illness and there was refuge and there were all sorts of things, but he, didn't, he couldn't bend. He had to break um, Tevye does not equal Shalom Aleichem, you emphasize for us. Um, Tevye was a village Jew, largely uneducated and, and unworldly. Uh, Shalom Aleichem, by com- contrast, was cosmopolitan and educated um, and a member of the elite. And yet, in some ways, they were similar in living emotional complexities of conflicts posed by rapidly changing worlds. That's your description. Um, yeah. Could you talk about this yeah, I think I think that uh, you know one of the reasons that this character became so popular, so versatile, and so beloved—not just by the the community as a whole, but by Shalom Aleichem himself—was that essentially, uh, you put it very nicely. Even though they were so different from each other, they were still dealing with a, a, a similar emotional dynamic. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why Tevye has become a character who has been accepted the world over, because it's a 
on the one hand, it's a very common and very powerful emotional dynamic, very universal one. And, and Shalom Aleichem has managed to create the contours of a way of talking about that that resonate uh, widely. So not only is Tevye like Shalom Aleichem, but Tevye is like a lot of other people, right? Uh, which is to say that Shalom Aleichem really understood how to write a situation that really appealed universally, that resonated universally. Um, now, you go beyond Shalom Aleichem's life, it seems to me, and very ambitiously you trace his afterlife uh, to tell us about American Jewish life and American Jewish history over a period of a century. Um, and um, I'm, I'm an American historian, so I found it particularly um, interesting to see how you use uh, biography as a teaching mechanism for history, in a sense. Um, I just found that I, I learned so much history through your biographical um, discussion. Um, and I thought it was quite an undertaking to examine American life through the vehicle of Tevye as the history of Tevye and his daughters developed in the U.S. Um, I wonder if you could share a little bit of this with our listeners. Um, uh, I yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. That's very nice to say, particularly um, someone who really is an American historian. Um, you know, I, I, as you say, the, really the, the, the afterlife of Shalom Aleichem was very interesting to me because, you know, we are faced with this heritage uh, and and what has been wrought in some ways, and we haven't, um, you know, how did you, how do we get there from here? Um, in in some ways. And I did limit it. In other words, Shalom Aleichem's afterlife, uh, I allude to this in in a little bit of the the book, but really takes place in in, in Israel and the Soviet Union um, and in the post-Soviet period, uh, as well as in America. But I really decided to sort of narrow it down to the American context. Um, And I think uh, that, you know, there were certain stories that became, you know, surprisingly and not sort of very uh, powerful uh, in, in talking about that. Uh, the first was uh, the story of Shalom Aleichem's use uh, by the left uh, in this country and sort of how that naturally shaped the kind of interest uh, of, you know, how to tell a story of Tevye and his daughters. Um, the other was the way in which um, Shalom Aleichem's you know, the image becomes tied up with, uh, you know, the post-Holocaust uh, means of American Jewish identity, defining American Jewish identity. Uh, as, you, as you know from the book, you know, when Shalom Aleichem passes away, uh, if you were going to make a bet on what aspect of Shalom Aleichem would play the best well in non-Jewish world, it probably would have been his children's stories. Um, in part because they seem to be sort of expressing a kind of immigrant refashioning, but maybe in general that was something that, that seemed universal. Uh, after the Holocaust, of course, uh, there was this interest in uh, the Jewish community, but also in others, in looking at and examining kind of the vanished world of the shtetl, and, and that becomes very powerfully resonant uh, in, in other stories of Shalom Aleppo's, including, obviously, uh, the Tevye stories. You um, you talk about Shalom Aleichem's funeral. He died in 1916 in New York City. His funeral was attended by somewhere between 150 and 250,000, the largest funeral on record at the time. Uh, yet his stories, very few of his writings had been translated into English. 
So presumably these were people who loved him for his Yiddish literature? That seems right, yes. I, I think, you know, at that point we have uh, in New York City a tremendous number of Eastern European Jewish immigrants, uh, and and many of these people, we believe, you know, are the people who, and must have been, are the people who turned out for this funeral. Uh, and what was the most interesting, at least to me, about that constituency is that, as I'd alluded to before, it was a very factionalized constituency. You know, there were Hebraists, and there were Yiddishists, and there were Orthodox Jews, and there were conservative Jews, and Reformed Jews, and uh, Jews, of, you know, who were not observant in any way, and Zionists, and Socialists, and, and you know, all of them were able to come together in, in, in mourning Shalom Aleichem, both because he, you know, created work that, that encompassed all of these different constituencies, and also, I think, because he represented uh, a, a world in which they all came from, and that they knew that in most cases they would not go back to and would not see again. You know, one of the things that you always find, you know this, of course, uh, from working on American history, is that nostalgia, you know, always sort of happens sort of at every stage um, for something that's gone by. So even though we think of these people as sort of, uh, you know, these, these Yiddish-speaking immigrants who are just... Uh, you know, very enmeshed in sort of the, the traditional world of Eastern European Jewry. Right? Of course, they're nostalgic for a world that, that they feel is vanishing as well. Uh, and and Shalom represented that world to them. So, so let me ask you in conclusion then, if uh, you might place him again for us in, in Yiddish literature and also um, his universal appeal. Yeah, I, 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 I think that uh, for Shalom Aleichem, you know, he really is one of the greatest Jewish writers, and perhaps the greatest Jewish writer ever. Um, and that he is, how do I put this? He he really is someone who is able to encompass uh, a world entire in his literature, but in a way that doesn't feel like he's trying to be deeply representative or allegorical or polemical or thudding. Uh, he does this in a way that really is deft and sometimes gentle and sometimes barbed and, and comic and sometimes tragicomic. Uh, he, he's able to do those things in a way that often expresses or exemplifies what we tend to call the, the modern Jewish comedy and the modern Jewish literary condition. Uh, as we, as we said, that is the best way of being universal, both because so much of Jewish literature, like so much of other great literary currents, has transcended its origin uh, to become uh, uh, the shared cultural heritage of, of you know, of certainly Western literature. I mean, we, we all find ourselves as being the heirs to English and French and German literature as well, and so Jewish literature too. Uh, but also, I think, you know, we are very well aware, and this is something, you know, I know we've been sounding throughout this, that, uh, you know, great universal literature is located in the particular, and we, we you know, Shalom Echem was able to sort of touch on a series of resonant issues that, from the success of Hitler, is very clear, uh, you know, really have struck a chord uh, very, very widely. Jeremy, thank you so much. You know, in the new book series, we always like to conclude our interviews by asking what your next project is. Do you, do you have one? Well, I'm thinking about some other biographical subjects, so that's something, okay. but I'm not sure yet exactly whether or not they're going to work out. I hope so, but I'm also working on a book on uh, Jewish horror. 
Uh, everyone always talks about Jewish humor. And I said, oh, maybe there's something to say about Jewish horror as well, specifically kind of that. So uh, I'm working on a book about that right now, too. That is really funny. Well, I hope when uh, that book is published, we'll have another chance to come back and visit with you and uh, and share that book with our listeners as well. So thank you. I love that. Let me thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure. And to our listeners, I want to recommend The Worlds of Sholem Aleichem to you. Jeremy Dauber's book is a great read and really will um, not only be a pleasure for you to read, but will also uh, really transform your, your appreciation of Sholem Aleichem, his life and his literature. The book is available in hardcover, and it's also available in Kindle format at your favorite bookstores, online, and at Jewish book fairs. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.